welcome to episode 192 of Board Game Blitz, a podcast about all things board games that you can listen to in less time than it takes to level up your entire set of characters in Baldur's Gate 3 if you're new to the game like me. Board Game Blitz is sponsored by Gray Fox Games. This week, we're talking about board game media. How meta. First, we discuss a couple games we've played recently, Backflip and Hello Kitty Day at the Park. Then, we talk about how board game media compares to media coverage of other forms of entertainment. And now, here are your hosts, Ambie and Crystal. One quick announcement before we hop into the episode, and that is that this month's TLN Marathon is coming up just this weekend. If you are listening to this episode right when it drops on Saturday, September 23rd, I am going to be streaming from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific time playing Letter Jam. Letter Jam just recently got an online implementation officially from CGE. And to say that I lost my mind when I found this out is an understatement. I was so excited. The day it launched, I literally like streamed it that night with people because I had to play it. And it works really well. I love it. So I'm going to play it for TLN. So if you want to see the new online implementation of Letter Jam, join me Saturday the 23rd at 4 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash boardgameblitz. Recently, I got a review copy of Batflip, which is a two-player card game themed around baseball, published in 2022 by Scorelander Games, designed by Scott Corlander. It was, I believe, a Kickstarter, but I got a review copy of this because Toby likes baseball. (laughs) I'm not super into baseball. I mean, I played it when I was a kid, but I'm not into, like, watching baseball or any sport, really. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to interrupt you just briefly before you get into the game, because I have to ask, are you aware of Banana Ball? No. Okay. Am I? Maybe? I don't know. So no. I'm going to ask a question that doesn't seem related, but it is. Have <laughs> okay. you heard of the Harlem Globetrotters? Yes. Okay. So they basically, they play exhibition yeah. basketball games uh-huh. where they do silly things, right? Uh-huh. So there's a team called the Savannah Bananas that does the same thing, but with baseball. Uh-huh. And there's a player who literally like bats and like runs the bases on stilts. There's a, <laughs> like the, they get bonus points for doing like trick plays. So like the guys in the out field will literally do a backflip when they catch the ball like that gets popped up in the air or they'll throw it to somebody else under their leg or oh and when the like there's a whole bunch of funny rules but like when a fan catches a foul ball in the stands it counts as an out like there's so many wacky Uh rules it is the best thing ever and it in that games last a maximum of two hours so it's way less short Uh or it's way shorter than regular (laughs) baseball (laughs) (laughs) i cannot recommend it highly enough you can watch on their youtube channel for free they stream all of their games uh, live and then you can watch the VODs but for any of you out there who are like uh, baseball's kind of long and it's kind of boring go watch Banana Ball I trust me on this it's so much fun <laughs> that would make a cool theme for a board game too <laughs> oh my gosh it would or like oh, an that's, expansion for a baseball one yeah like a Banana Ball themed board game where you had to like incorporate trick plays or <laughs> yeah. whatever else like that actually sounds pretty interesting 
<laughs> but anyways, bat flip is not that. <laughs> okay, yeah, I know. I had that's why I interrupted before you got to it because I didn't want to interrupt mid review. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so bat flip is a two-player game designed by Scott Corlander, published by Scorlander Games. It plays in it says thirty-five to forty-five minutes. It's a two-player card game that's like baseball, but it only lasts three innings. So in an actual baseball game, there's nine innings, but in this one, it's only three innings. So it's like a shorter version of a game. I guess you'd have to do a second inning stretch instead of a seventh inning stretch. Then. <laughs> <laughs> There's no stretch in there. But you alternate being like the batter and the fielder. And so you have a hand of cards. It's just a card game. You have a deck of cards that have different baseball players with different stats, like their batting stat, their fielding stat, their stealing bases stat, and their walking stat. So when you're the batting team, you're going to play a card that you're either going to choose to bat or walk or do a bat flip. And that's a once per inning thing. So a bat flip, you flip over the top card from your deck and use that to bat and it can't be defended against. But usually when you're batting, you play a card and then it uses your batting stat and then the other person can play a defender's card from their hand that like you compare it against their defense stat, the glove stat. And then if, if your batting is higher, then you get to go on base. Otherwise you get out. And that's like the basic thing. You're comparing your stats against the other person and like same for walking, you compare against their pitcher's control. They have special pitcher cards that stay in play throughout the game. And if you get three outs, then the other person gets to go and they're batting now and you're trying to like get as many runs as you can. So I did not like this game. It's like a lot of card draw. It's just drawing cards and like playing the stats. Each person, each character also has like a special ability and there's different teams. We played picking random teams at the beginning, but I guess there's a draft where you can pick which teams you have. But like, I didn't want to read all of the different teams because they're all like apparently play differently and have different powers and stuff. There's lots of reading on the cards because they each have special abilities too. But like, it felt very random to me because it's just like drawing cards and then being able to play what you have in your hand. And so it's very dependent on what you have in your hand. And some cards just felt better than others. Like I was playing like my highest cards for batting and I just didn't beat Toby's hands for defense ever. And so I'm like, okay, I can never get on base. It felt like until I got to the bottom of my deck and then I got my better cards. I'm like, oh, okay, now I can get a run. Yeah, so, it doesn't, if, like, if there's no mitigation, like if they have higher <laughs> cards than you, that's got to be frustrating. Yeah, so like maybe if I di had different teams or something, but neither of us really liked it enough to play it again. So we only played it once, but the components itself were pretty nice. It was like nice looking baseball cards. Some of the cards were holographic. That didn't affect gameplay at all, <laughs> but they just had some holographic cards. It felt kind of like you had a collector baseball cards, but you're like trying to play a game out of it rather than like a game for gamers. So that's probably why Toby and I didn't like it as much because we're like super into board gamers. But like maybe if it was like someone who liked baseball and collecting baseball cards, then they would like it more. Also, the, sc the scoreboard was kind of neat. The score tracker looked like a baseball scoreboard, like with the runs and stuff. It had like the home team, the away team and and little dial that you move to, sh to show the runs you have. So that was that's pretty that was cool. Neat. And there's a little dial that marks how many outs there are. <laughs> so that was nice. And, th and the insert was nice and fits like all the cards plus the expansion cards. So like component wise I liked that but I the gameplay was not for me so that was a bat flip a two-player baseball card game I recently got a chance to play a digital version, a pre-production digital version of a game that's going to be coming to Kickstarter soon. I will state up front, this is not a paid preview. I have not spoken with the publisher at all. I got to play this game with Benita on her Twitch stream, and she is working with the publisher, but I have no relationship with them whatsoever. I'm choosing to review this game because I just really liked it. So just stating that up front. The game, and I want 
want y'all just don't don't stop listening to me when I say the title. It is Hello Kitty Day at the Park. And you're probably thinking what I was thinking when I heard the title of the game. I was thinking, oh, okay, a Hello Kitty game. It's probably really light and it's probably really simple and it'll be cute, but probably not that interesting, right? Like I was judgmental, but I still was willing to play it because I've grown as a gamer. <laughs> Even if I have a little judgment in my head, I'm like, yeah, let's check it out. Let's see what it is. And I was pleasantly surprised. So Hello Kitty Day at the Park, designed by Roberta Taylor, published by Maestro Media, again, coming to Kickstarter later in September. So it has not been published yet, but will be in 2024. This game is a tile laying game where each player takes on the role of one of the characters from the Hello Kitty universe, and they are trying to have the most epic day at the park. They do that by laying down tiles and then moving their character through the park to pick up resources to then complete their adventure cards that they have in front of them. The adventure cards are dual-sided, and when you draw adventure cards, you get to choose which side you want to do. One side is generally the simple side where you just collect the resources and once you spend them you get a certain amount of points and that's it. The other side of the card generally is going to have a couple of different things on it potentially. Some of them you get a small amount of victory points plus bonus victory points if you pay extra resources or they will give you some kind of end game scoring condition that you can now work toward. So you can make the game simpler for like maybe younger players or people who aren't as familiar with how games or more complex if you are looking for something a little more gamery, which I appreciated. And you can do that like in the midst of the game. You don't have to make that decision up front. So you can even have one player doing one thing and one player doing a different one. As you move your player through the park, the resource system is interesting because you get to pick up the resources as you move through the park. And then wherever your character ends up each turn, the resource on that tile, you also have access to for free. You don't pick up a token for it, but when you are turning in adventure cards during that round, you get one of that resource for free for every adventure card you turn in. So your movement around the park needs to be really strategic because of the free resources that you have to utilize potentially. So if you can plan your adventure cards and your pathing well, you can turn in a lot of adventures all at the same time. There are also these tokens. Every time a new tile comes out, it gets a token on it. And when you pick those tokens up, you flip them over to see what's on them. And they give you a number of different benefits. Some of them will let you switch out resources for other resources. Some of them will give you a wild resource and other cool benefits. Those can be very powerful throughout the game as well. This is still at its core, a relatively light game. It is not super complex or super deep by any means. But I would say if you are a fan of light tile laying games and you have any affinity for the Hello Kitty brand, this is definitely something to take a look at. I was never really a big fan of Hello Kitty. I think she's cute, but I never really got into it. So I don't have any, a specific affinity for it. But the artwork was exactly what you would expect. Very cute. And the gameplay was fun and satisfying. And Benita and I, when we played it, ended up, I think, one point? 
difference between each of us. Like it felt very competitive and it felt like I was making strategic decisions during the course of the game. There were, it wasn't obvious what I should do every turn, which to me is the sign of a good tile laying game because if your decisions are obvious, then, you know, that's a little less interesting. So I approve. I like Hello Kitty A Day at the Park. We've talked over the years about how IP based games have really come a long way. And I would say this is a good example of that. So yeah, if you're looking for a game to play with the family or maybe some people who are maybe a little bit less into the hardcore hobby games, this is a great one. Take a look. Again, this was not paid. I have not talked to the publisher at all, but I liked it. So that's Hello Kitty. Uh, uh, I keep calling it a day at the park. It's just Hello Kitty day at the park. Did you play like the the most difficult version or? So I did both because when oh, you, you every both. time, okay. yeah, every time. So there's three different difficulties of the adventure cards. Like there's uh-huh. easy adventure cards, medium and hard. And uh-huh. basically those ones are less resources, less points, more resources, uh-huh. more points kind of things. But every time you draw one, you can flip it to either side. So oh. again, one side is like turn in these certain resources for flat out victory points. The other side is the either end game scoring conditions or turn in some resources for some points and add extra resources for more points or whatever. What's neat about that is like toward the end of the game, we were able to be like, okay, I'm drawing all easy cards and putting them on the easy side because I knew I wouldn't have many opportunities to gain more resources at that point. So it's not, yeah, it's not just about mitigating the the difficulty of the game, but you can also kind of modify what you can do Mm -hmm. and win with the Mm -hmm. the way that works. And so I really liked that as well. Like I was like, okay, we're going to see what else we can get done here, especially because I did have some in-game scoring conditions that were like, if you have this type of card, you score X points at the end of the game. And so I was trying to pick up those cards and get as many of them completed as I could. So at that point, it actually behooved me to take the easier ones potentially. <laughs> That's interesting that like the difficulty level can actually be very strategic. <laughs> yeah, like I was, I really was impressed. <laughs> yeah. All right, so recently, well, not super recently now, (laughs) but in the recent past, there has been the conversation that pops up, it seems, I don't know how often, every, what, once a year, once every couple of years, all the time. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. Like the Energizer Bunny. Yes. (laughs) The ethics in board game media discussion. And we're not, don't worry, we're not going to do a deep dive into the ethics part of things. But we did want to kind of do a quick discussion about our thoughts on why board game media differs from media in other areas of the world, other parts, other hobbies, other venues, other things in general. (laughs) Because I really like, at least from my point of view, board game media feels very unique when compared to media and like journalistic coverage of many other forms of entertainment. Well, yeah, a lot of board game media isn't really journalistic coverage. (laughs) Right. Um. (laughs) I mean, that's point number one, right? (laughs) Yeah, I don't actually consume much media outside of board game media. So a lot of times I'm like, I don't actually know what other media is like nowadays because I don't... Like, I watch some um, video game YouTube channels, but that is somewhat close to board gaming, I think. I don't know. Yeah, I would say YouTube kind of runs the gamut at this point. You have everything from very professional journalistic entities on YouTube all the way down to a 12-year-old in 
in their basement giving their opinions, right? So the entire scale exists on YouTube. So it's hard to kind of use that as a point of direct comparison. Mm -hmm. But if you look at like news or media outlets that are more official. So in board game media, like the Dice Tower is one of the more prominent names. Like Mm -hmm. if you were talking about board game media, I think you would name stuff like Watch It Played or the Dice Tower kind of first and foremost, if you were trying to be like the big people in board game media. But they are very different companies and entities than the types of companies that tend to cover things like video games, movies, Mm -hmm. books, all of those other forms of entertainment. And it's an interesting thing because I wonder if that's just because those other forms of entertainment gained popularity much sooner than hobby board games or if there is there are other factors at play yeah it might be partly that also you mentioned that youtube is like different than other media and both dice tower and watch it played are youtube channels so a lot of board game media is on youtube and that's probably why there's like not really big newspaper things that cover board games that much there's like polygon sometimes has board game yeah polygon kotaku like there's a few slightly more mainstream like vox i think sometimes like there are some more mainstream sites that do occasional board game coverage Mm -hmm. but very very few that have like dedicated people or teams that cover board game news like yeah that's not generally like a wing of one of these companies Yeah, like the other thing I would think was Board Game Geek, like because they have blog posts, Board Game Geek news, like every week or something. I'm not sure how often. <laughs> so that that's what I was thinking of when if you exclude YouTube. But then it's like no shade to any of the companies that we're mentioning here at all. And I want to be specific about Board Game Geek right here because the work they do is amazing and very important. But like Board Game Geek, I don't know what their editorial process is like. But mm-hmm. if you're if you're at a company like Paul. Polygon, for instance, there generally is going to be an editorial process that every piece of content is going to go through. Often, if you're doing like a big story, there will be fact checkers who will go through the work of the reporter and make sure the details are accurate. Like somebody outside of the person who is writing the thing that will be like, okay, yes, this, this, and this, I fact checked them, those are accurate. And then there's an editor who goes through and makes sure everything is, you know, Mm -hmm. laid out well make sense clear and will potentially be like okay we need to change this for x y and z reasons and i don't think i would guess that again aside from those few sites that do some board game coverage occasionally if we omit those i would guess that there are likely no dedicated news outlets that do that full journalistic process Mm -hmm. for just board game media specifically yeah probably not (laughs) i i can't think of any that would which is interesting Interesting, right? Because I think a lot of people kind of are like, well, board games are subjective. You can't really, you can't, you know, you can't say a board game is good or bad because it's based on personal opinion. But then movies get reviewed, books get reviewed, video, like all these other forms of media that technically are subjective get journalistic coverage and get reviewed by journalists. So I wonder when board games will kind of hit that point where journalistic coverage will either become desired by the populace of board gamers or necessary because of board games popularity. Like if it will ever grow enough that that kind of coverage will feel necessary. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, we already mentioned like there's there's sometimes there's reviews on Polygon and stuff like Charlie Thiel does reviews there. But yeah, like I don't know. I think when we think of board game media, it's like a lot of hobby people too, like just people doing it for fun, which is mostly like YouTube (laughs) and I have people doing podcasts. (laughs) Like us. It's like, hey, we can do a podcast. (laughs) Right. Which is literally how we started. We were just like, hey, we can do that. And a lot of other people start the same way. And Mm -hmm. what makes us experts? Right? We truly like we're nothing. We we just love playing games. Uh And And a lot of people kind of are like, you know, who are you to talk about board games or whatever else? But it's the dearth of coverage from other outlets that I think has really led to the hobbyists wanting to talk more. Because if if board games had the same levels of coverage as video games, for instance, Mm -hmm. I don't think there would be as many hobby media creators because there wouldn't be a need for it right Mm. people love to hate on i shouldn't say people some a a small population of people a small percentage of people love to hate on board game content creators and they continue to you know be like all these board game content creators they're they're shills and they're doing paid reviews for companies and it's all fake and whatnot and there may be bad apples in the bunch somewhere right but from what i know generally that's not the majority of the board game media people that exist and and most of the people are doing it because they do have a love of the hobby and they want to spread that love to others. And mm-hmm. how else is the hobby going to grow if no larger outlets are covering it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I guess also if larger outlets covered it, then people wouldn't think of board game media as these small people doing hobbies. Because like there's lots of people, small YouTube people just doing stuff about other things too. And people don't call them like, oh, the, I don't know. <laughs> I don't watch well, enough no, that's a content. Good, like. <laughs> that's a good point. But like, and those people, to be fair, video game companies do send out re- mm-hmm. review copies of video games to small creators, right? They don't yeah. just send them to the big, huge news outlets. There are lots of smaller content creators that exist that if they reach out to a video game company, even if they have a pretty modest audience, the company often will send yeah sure cover this game now video games the work has kind of already been done to create the thing and it's since it's digital it's a little less expensive to mm-hmm. theoretically give that game to someone right now obviously yeah. they're losing out on the money that that person would have theoretically spent but a board game company has to pay to physically ship a physical item to mm-hmm. a board game hobbyist so there are different costs involved and mm-hmm. I can appreciate that board game companies have likely really been struggling the past few years as shipping costs have risen with how do we continue to get coverage on our games without like making our margins you know too ridiculous because we can't send out a thousand copies of this game (laughs) because we need people to buy it (laughs) yeah and with video games like since i i stream some video games and like i get the steam keys it's like people just send them like really easily compared to like board games where it's like I, I get surprised because I have like very few viewers on Twitch and then people are like oh yeah I'll send you this key and I'm like oh okay <laughs> but whereas like a board game I just feel like 
<laughs> the shipping alone costs so much. So yeah, it's one of those things where if you let's say a video game costs five dollars, right, mm -hmm. and they give you a key for free, you stream it and you get two people to purchase it, then they've made a profit theoretically on their decision, right? <laughs> yeah. But with a board game, let's let's say it costs fifty dollars MSRP, and they send a copy to you and you get two people to buy it, but they still have to ship those physical board games to people. The margins yeah. are going to be really different, right? It's yeah. not the same kind of benefit at the same levels. So it, it is different factors at play. Yeah, in video games, you only need one person to buy it because like, you don't know if the streamer would have bought it themselves. That's true. Otherwise. I mean, bringing awareness to digital games mm -hmm. is, I think, just in general going to be a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. And video games, especially smaller ones, are an easier ask. I mean, there's a reason why mobile app games and microtransactions have become so popularized in the past decade or so. Because if you ask a person to spend 99 cents on something, almost everybody, assuming it's something they even barely want, almost everybody will be like, okay, yeah, sure, you know, sure, whatever. Like 99 cents really doesn't feel like anything to most people at this point, at least in the modern Western world. Obviously, money has different value to different people, but that's generally the way microtransactions are built. And there are no microtransactions in board games, right? Even in expansion, <laughs> it, like a small box expansion, it's still going to cost 10 to 15 bucks. And that for some people, that can yeah. make a difference. That can be a decision that they need to make. I guess we're just mostly comparing it to video games at this point. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like the easiest yeah. point of comparison, just because the, the hobbies are similar and they yeah, kind they of are. draw from similar audiences. Mm -hmm. But this, we could compare it to other forms of entertainment as well, like movies. I just, mm -hmm. I tend to get internally, like, not angry, but just like a little bit miffed when people talk about board game content creators and what they believe board game content creators are doing when you can tell they obviously have no insider knowledge at all and they're just speculating and guessing or they learn about one content creator and then they take that learning and apply it to everyone they do that with publishers too <laughs> right yeah, no they do well, yeah when we're talking about they it's like <laughs> Wait, some, it's a, some vocal people online sometimes. a small percentage <laughs> of vocal crummy people that tend to yell the loudest the most hobby board gamers are wonderful awesome people who would never do such things. But we know that the most annoying ones tend to be the most vocal and they're the ones shouting in web forums and posting in all caps on social media and harassing publishers via email. And, you know, same with board game content creators too. And that kind of stuff has driven some board game content creators out of content creation, which is really sad because we've lost a lot of really talented people that were bringing a lot of, at least in my estimation, journalistic integrity to board game media. Now, obviously we don't have journalistic practices in the media that we're creating for the most part, but the integrity for a lot of these people is there as far as I can tell and have seen. And we've lost a lot of those good people because the good ones are the ones that often are the ones that get the most heat from the bad ones. <laughs> 
So why is board game coverage different than other forms of media? I mean, can we actually answer that question simply? I don't think the answer is no. No. Maybe this is just food for thought. You know, the next time you see somebody complaining in a web forum, maybe provide an alternate perspective or just think about like there's human beings behind these publishers and these content creators. And I'm not referencing Ambie and I, like I'm not talking on behalf of us. We're fine. We're good. This is not related to anything that has happened to us we're okay but we've seen things happen to other people and we know that other stuff happens that we don't even know about and i just y'all be kind like (laughs) i and also don't get involved in a converse a general like conversation if you're not involved in it like you don't need to weigh in if you're not part of it like we're part of it so we are i feel like we can talk about this but not, not everybody needs to throw in their two cents so That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) And that's it for this week's Board Game Blitz. Visit our website, boardgameblitz.com, for more content and links. This episode was sponsored by Gray Fox Games. Have you backed the world of Midgard Kickstarter yet? The campaign is ending soon, so go check it out now to add to your collection of Midgard-themed games. And if you want to buy games at grayfoxgames.com, you can get 10% off your entire order, including promos, exclusives, and upgrades not available anywhere else by using the code BGBLITZ2023 at checkout. Join the Blitzketeer community on Discord for game nights, discussions, and more by following the link in the show notes. Support the show by leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify. And if you like us a lot and want to support us monetarily and get some cool perks, check out our Kofi at ko-fi.com slash boardgameblitz today. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Morrow. Until next time, board game blitz do 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 board game blitz do 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 board game blitz do 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 board game blitz. Bye everyone! In an actual baseball game, it lasts nine innings. (laughs) It's been a while. Okay. I got confused because baseball highlights has like six innings or something. And then like, (laughs) okay.